Uh, we are wrapping up our series today uh, called um, uh, Life, Money, and, and Hope. And the idea behind this <clears throat> is, is that, that money creates for us some of the most stressful situations that we ever, we ever go into. Uh, somebody had to ask, uh, or, or some, some of you, well, somebody did ask, but I, I don't think that that one person is the only person who's thought this. But, you know, when I come to church, I want to hear stories about Jesus. I want to hear stories about faith. I want to hear stories about, like, I, like teach me how to pray, like this kind of stuff. And, and like in this three-week series, it's, it's all about money. Like I, I feel like this, like what does this have to do with becoming more like Jesus? And truthfully, it has everything to do with being more like Jesus because Jesus himself talked about money more than anything else he ever talked about. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, the first and the largest single sermon that we have of Jesus, the largest portion of that sermon is given to the topic of money. And if you add up everything Jesus said about faith, and if you add up everything Jesus said about prayer, and you combine those two piles of things that Jesus said into one big pile, it would be a smaller pile than the pile of things Jesus said about money. He said more about money than he said about any other thing, which makes sense to me, because money is the one thing that stresses us out more than everything else. Money problems is the number one reason for divorce. It's the number one things that destroys families. And if God really does love us, and if God really does care about us, then shouldn't God care about the number one thing that destroys and blows up our families, yes or no? I mean, obviously, if it's the number one threat to your family, then shouldn't God talk about it? I mean, if he's going to say he loves us, then shouldn't he care about the things we care about? This is the number one thing that would cause you or tempt you to compromise on your own convictions or your integrity. Money gets us to think about doing things we would never, under any other circumstances, think about. So if God really does love us, then shouldn't he talk a lot about this? It's the number one reason why you lose sleep. It's the number one reason why you're stuck. It's the number one reason some of us are unhappy. And if this is the number one thing that competes for God's attention in our heart, then shouldn't it be the number one? Like, that just makes sense that he would care about what we care so much about. I mean, if he's going to love us, then he should care about what we love so much. And this is true, and I've seen it in my own life with, with my son. Uh, my son, Ryan, uh, loves soccer, and I never loved soccer at all uh, because you have to, I hate running. Running is stupid. You just, I, I don't know, like, like give me a ball that I like shooting a hoop. And like, like I like basketball because you just, you run from here to there. That's it. Just boom, boom, right there. And then, you know, when you get done, you just go from there right back to here again. It's just like beep, 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 beep. And that's it. And sometimes you don't even have to run very fast. You can just kind of like walk there. So you can, basketball, you can even do it backwards. Like, like when they, you know, you make a basket and you get back on defense, you don't even have to turn around and run hard. Like, it's like, like, I like that kind of running. Like, I can run from this side of the stage to that side of the stage and stop for the next two minutes. That's nice. I can do that. But to like, those guys run solid for 90 minutes, stab me in the face. I don't want to do that. Just run, just run and run and run and run and run. So like I saw soccer games when I was growing up as a little kid, and I'm like, that sport is not for me. In, in little kids, we had husky jeans that came in slim, regular, and, and they're not, no, the, what were they? They, weren't, they were tough skins. Remember the patch would rip off? Uh, okay, I'm only speaking to like a 
20% of the crowd here. My bad. But when I was a little boy, jeans came in three different sizes, slim, regular, and husky. Husky's just a nice word for chubby. And homeboy always wore husky jeans. So that's why I never played soccer. But Ryan loves soccer. So because I love Ryan, guess what I've tried to learn about? Soccer. Like, I'm pumped about soccer, like Arsenal plays today against Chelsea, and I'm really excited about this because this is my team versus his team, and homeboy's going down. Like, there will not be peace in the Sears household today, <laughs> right? Like, we tape British Premier now, and I just found out how to tape the, the Bundesliga League, and, and, because, and so now I'm only talking to, like, four people in the room right now when I start talking about this stuff. I'm just saying I'm starting to geek out over soccer, but this is all happening because of one thing. It's not, it has nothing to do with soccer. It has everything to do with the love that I have for Ryan. And because Ryan has my heart, the things that have his attention have mine. Does that make sense? Why wouldn't God be the same way? Why wouldn't he say, listen, since I know this is going to be the number one thing that screws you up, i got a lot to say about this. And so while it gets really uncomfortable, and I don't know why, I think it's because of the stereotype of churches and money. I think that's, that's why. It's the stereotype, right? And it's a stereotype for a reason, but it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But if I skip the stuff that God has to say about money, then truthfully, I don't deserve to keep my job, Right? So what I want us to do is I want us to look at what he has to say about it. Now, you get to do whatever you want with it. You get to decide whether or not you believe the Bible is true. Now, you believing the Bible is true doesn't make it true or make it untrue. What you believe about the truthfulness of the Bible doesn't change whether or not the Bible is truthful. So it either is or it isn't. What you believe about it doesn't matter. All right? But what you believe about it does change the way you'll live your life. Does that make sense? So I'm going to share with you what, you what the Bible has to say about it. You decide for yourself whether or not you trust God enough to obey God. So he's got a lot to talk about, a lot, lot to say about it. And here's what I want to do. I'm, I'm going to, uh, and, I'm, and I'm looking for a volunteer that I can put on the spot uh, really quick. And, and I see all of you guys, you, you guys are, are ducking. T tell you what, can I just get a, t um, Jonatus, there you go. There's a face. There's a face. Jonatus. Jonatus, did you know I was going to call on you? You did? <laughs> ah, the Holy Spirit spoke into your heart. And told you, I need, can you walk slower? No, I was being sarcastic. Get your butt up here. <laughs> see, see what I'm saying? Can you walk a little slower there, bud? Jonathan is one of the young leaders in our church. He's a stud, and I'm really thankful to God for him. And, and he's very slow. He's very slow. <laughs> and would you stand right here? So this is, this is not going to be too embarrassing. There's, there's no prepared lines. And obviously, he didn't know I was, I was going to be calling him up here. But I have... I have here a, a, a fresh uh, $100 bill, all right? You guys see this $100 bill? Um, I, I have mint, actually, this is the only one I have, so be careful with it. So I've got, I've got a $100 bill, and so this, this, is, this is mine. Whose money is this? This is my money. Everybody say yours. This is my money, all right? And so in this illustration, John is going to be the bank. So uh, I am me, and John is the bank. So who am I? I'm me, and then John is... The bank. So, so here's here's the situation for the for this illustration. So I, I have a hundred dollars, and 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 what I want to do is I want to put my my hundred dollars in the bank. Um, so when when I when I give my money to the bank, I create uh, something that did not exist before, and that's a fiduciary trust. And what that means is that John has a response, a legal responsibility, to handle 
that money in my best interests. And if he doesn't do that, he can go to jail. Are you with me? It's his, now, now, now who has the money? The bank has the money, but whose money is it? And the bank has to handle the money in whose best interest? Now, I know that while he has my money in the bank, he's going to put that to use to make money for himself because the bank needs to make money because they have responsibilities also. Does that make sense? But whose money is it? And see, there's sometimes even fees. Like, there's, there's things that we've agreed to about this. So I know that when I give him my money, he has to use that for himself. I know that. And we've agreed to the terms on which that will happen. But when I come to this bank and I say, I want my money back, what does the bank need to do? They need to give me my money. All right? So you, the bank takes my money, and the bank doesn't leave it out on the counter. So put it where the bank puts the money. There you go. So if I were to, to come to John as the bank, and I, and I said, uh, I, I want my money, and then, and then John were to say, no, wait, you got ahead of me, because he's a good bank. That's why he was going to give me the money back. <clears throat> but if he were to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have it, I, I would say, what, what do you mean you don't have it? And he said, uh, I, 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 I needed new tires, and, and so I, I, I used your money. I, I would, okay, this glass might stop bullets, but it ain't going to stop me, right? I'd reach my hand under that glass, grab that boy's tie, and I'd say, what? Okay, I wouldn't do any of that because I'm not that tough. Um, but but would, would he have failed or kept his responsibility towards me, yes or no? Uh, he, would, he, would, he, would, he would have failed in his responsibility because while he has, he, he has charge of that money, uh, he only has that money because I have entrusted that money to him. But his responsibility now that he has that money is to act with that money in whose best interests? In my best interest. And this is a, this, the old-fashioned or the biblical word for this is, is stewardship. It's a steward. So he becomes a steward. He becomes the caretaker of the resources for somebody else. And he has directional control over this as long as he handles those resources in whose best interest? In mine. All right, John, you did a great job. Thank you for... What an honest guy. Good job. Give John a hand. He did a fantastic job. And right there, truthfully, there was a little moment where I was like, you know what? I want to just give that to him to be a blessing. But it really is my only one, and we have one more service to go. So I'm sorry. You're not getting jacked. But I, I do appreciate the help very, very much. And, and in this illustration, um, it, this, this goes back to Psalm chapter 24. In Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. If you've got your Bible, you can look it up. If not, you can write it down on the back side of your notes. But in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, it says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all the people belong to him. So according to the scriptures, everything about this planet, everything on this planet, all the people who live on the planet, and all the stuff that we have ultimately belongs to God. Now, if you have some of those resources now, those have been entrusted to you, but they don't belong to you. Everything that we have comes to us from God. So in this scenario between me and the bank, it would be as though I was in the position of God and, me, and, and John as the bank would be in the position of each one of us. That the stuff that we have has been given to us by who? By God and is to be leveraged for whose purposes? For God's purposes. Now God knows that the resources he gives us are the resources on which we also have to live and exist and to thrive on. But ultimately, we have a responsibility to leverage those resources in whose interests? In God's interests. Everything we own is on loan. 
We are simply managers of what rightfully belongs to God. We're asset managers. When I recognize that this stuff isn't mine, it changes what I go into debt for. It changes whether or not I'm willing to give. It changes how much I'm willing to give. It also changes what I feel I should and shouldn't spend my money on when I recognize that everything I have belongs to who? Now, not everybody in here believes that. But if you're a devoted follower of Jesus and God's word is the source of your life and the foundation on which you are building your life, and according to the scriptures, you belong to God. Everything you have belongs to God. You are not an owner. You're an asset manager. And when I look at my resources through the lens of being an asset manager, it should change the way I handle my resources. Now, there are two conditions or two thoughts I want to give in preparation for the two biggest myths about money that we're going to talk about today. And that first one is this, that God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. The Bible says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the thousand hills that the cattle's on. We just read in Psalm chapter 24 that everything belongs to God. So God, God doesn't need your money. Grace Church doesn't need your money. Grace Church, whether you give or not, is going to, the people of Grace Church are going to leverage and spend the rest of their lives giving as many of their friends and neighbors an opportunity to know and to follow Jesus, whether or not you give a dime. We will lay down our lives to make sure that everybody we love and care about gets another opportunity to know and to follow Jesus. And truthfully, if everybody stopped giving here at Grace Church, I honestly believe that God would provide the funds through some other, other, other path because that's what God has done in the, path, in, in the past. So Grace Church doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. So why does God ask us to give it? And I think that there are two reasons why God asks us to give money, to give what matters to us. And the reason why God asks us to give our money is because he's trying to make us like Jesus. And if there's one defining characteristic of Jesus, it's that he gave. One defining characteristic of God is that he's giving. God is a generous God. And if his plan is to make me more like Jesus, then wouldn't he want me to become more generous, more selfless, more sacrificial? Yes or no? God's got a plan. This is going somewhere. And as long as everything I own is used for me, then am I more or am I less like Jesus? Less. I think there's only two things that you can do. <clears throat> there's two things that you'll do that make you more like Jesus than anything else that you'll ever do. And that is to forgive people who don't deserve it, right? And to give beyond our capacity, to be generous, to be sacrificial. Because those are the two things I think that define those who follow Jesus above anybody else from any other religion. That's it. We forgive unforgivable things. Why? Because God forgave us for unforgivable things. And we give to selfless, selfish people because God gives to us when we're selfish. God's a generous God. And so it makes sense that he would want us to do this. And the second reason why he wants us to, to give is to demonstrate where our heart is. We give to those things that we care most about. I, I have right here in my hand an offering envelope. And it's a little bit bigger than the offering envelopes we have because it's from five years ago. And uh, we were doing uh, our Hope Project, and I had gotten up and talked about Hope Project, and uh, that the people who do the finances on Monday, who count the offerings and do the bank deposits and keep our books and all that kind of stuff, uh, brought this envelope in and said, uh, I hope this isn't inappropriate, but I thought you'd want to see this envelope. 
And because this envelope was, was given in church by my daughter, Lauren, who was 14 at the time and didn't have a job. And, and when we talked about the Hope Project, and I said everybody ought to pray about it and everybody ought to do as absolute most as you possibly can. Lauren, on one of those weekends between Thanksgiving and Christmas, dropped in an offering envelope and wrote a hundred, and it's a hundred dollars. And it says, use this for whatever you need in the Hope Project. And that meant a lot, sorry. <clears throat> First of all, I want to know where in the world that girl got a hundred dollars. <laughs> How did she come up with a hundred bucks? And then when that 14-year-old girl gave a, found a hundred dollars, the fact that she gave all of that, to God? I said, I don't care about the money. You know what I care about? My daughter. What she did with her money, though, told me who she cares most about. And it wasn't more crap. It wasn't an iPod. What my daughter loved was God. And as a father, I've hung on to this. And if this building starts to burn down, I'm going to reach into my right drawer. And the one thing I will take out of this building with me is this envelope. This is proof that my daughter, at least at one time in her life, <laughs> loved God more than everything else. What you spend your money on is what you care most about. Jesus said that. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go also. Our money doesn't follow our heart. Our heart follows our money. And God knows that. And he wants our heart. So he says, I want you to give. Why? Because it demonstrates, it will, it will lead your heart. So that's what he's after. He's after our heart. So there's two myths about money. The first, the first myth is this. And I've already mentioned it, but here's the first money myth that we're going to talk about. That is that my money belongs to me. That's the first myth. My stuff is mine. My stuff is mine. First Chronicles chapter 29. If you've got your Bible, go there. It's one of those hard books in the Bible to find. It's in front of the book of Psalms, if that helps you at all. Usually you can open up your Bible to the very middle, and that'll be Psalms. And so it's in front of that. If you go to First Corinthians, excuse me, First Chronicles chapter 29, and I'm just now read, realizing I didn't bring my reading glasses up here. <clears throat> so that's something new about getting old that I hate. But uh, in, in Psalm, excuse me, in First Chronicles chapter 29, uh, David, you know, King David, the famous guy with the slingshot and Goliath and everything, he had become king. And uh, he was this contradiction, uh, this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it an oxymoron? He was, uh, uh, he was like the, 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 the opposites uh, were in this one dude. The Bible says, by the way, that David had a heart for God unlike anybody else who had ever lived, at least up until that time, uh, that David had a, a heart like, like God's. Uh, and he, he was a warrior. Uh, David was a, like a mighty stud military, like, 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 like battle stud is what he was, who, who became king, but he was also a poet. So he never, he, never, he never lost that side of him. No matter how many battles he fought, he, he still kept a healthy center. 
you get what I'm saying? So he was like a, a warrior poet who was a, a worshiper and, 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 a, and a warrior at the same time. So he was like, like these, these, you would think polar opposites come together in this one person uh, beautifully in a life that, that lived fully leveraged for the glory of God. And we do have some stories of some awful things that he did along the way, but every time you see those, you also see the fact that he came to, when he was confronted with his sin, he repented and turned his heart back to God again. So it's not that he was perfect, but he was constantly reorienting himself around the person of God, which is what it looks like to be a devoted follower of God. He gets to the end of his life, and he had amassed a, a huge amount of personal wealth that he was now going to set aside to build God a temple, but God said, your hands are too bloody to build my temple. I'm not going to let you do it, but I'll let your son build the temple for me. So what David does is at the end, he's, he's, this is the last thing he does as king. <clears throat> but he calls all of Israel together, and he, he brings them to a place where they are to give an offering. And this was above. This was, this was an offering that wasn't connected to uh, the, 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 the law or, or, or any of those other things that they regularly did in giving to, the, to God. Uh, this was on top of that. And he brought them together, and they gave this huge offering to set up the building of the temple in Jerusalem by Solomon. And, and then he gathers all the people together right after this offering, and then this is the prayer that David prays, and I want to read you his prayer. Praise this out loud in front of all of the, all of the people of Israel. Uh, o Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, uh, may, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from who? You alone. Uh, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are given influence. People are made strong. Oh, our Lord, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should give you anything? Because everything that we have came from you, and we're giving you only what you first gave us. We are here for only a moment, visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us, and our days on, <clears throat> on earth excuse me, are like a passing shadow, gone so soon without a, without a trace. O oh Lord, our God, even this material that we have gathered to build a temple to honor your holy name comes from you. It all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you examine our hearts and you rejoice when you find integrity there. You know that I have done all of this with good motives, and I have watched over your people. Uh, I have watched your people offer their gifts willingly and joyously. O oh Lord, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Israel, make your people always want to obey you. See to it that their love for you never changes. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all of your commands, laws, and decrees, and to do everything necessary to build this temple for which I have made these these preparations was his prayer. Now, there's certain things about that prayer that are specific to the circumstances he was in, but there are certain things about his prayer that are general principles that are true for all time. The things that he said about his prayer that were only true for that moment in time was that the reason this material was gathered together was for a temple that was going to be built at a specific location on the other side of the world. The specific thing that has to do with his specific location is that this was going to be built by his son, Solomon. But there are principles that are true, not just at that place in time and at that place in the world, but for all places around the world for all times. Look back through that passage of Scripture if you open it up in your Bible, and I'll give you some of those principles. One of the things I learned, one of those principles from David's prayer is this, that everything belongs to God on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. It all belongs to Him. A number two principle that I get from that passage of Scripture is that wealth comes to us from who? From God, and this is true. Some of you guys might initially push back on that and said, I'm the one who created my wealth. But the truth is, everything, that, everything about you is on loan. 
You are not the source of anything that is in your life. And I know that that might rub you the wrong way because we like to think of ourselves as being more than we are. We all do this. By the way, it's not just you. We all do this, but it's true. You didn't choose not to be born with a debilitating disease. Did you choose that for yourself? Who chose that for you? Who gave you that asset? Your personality, your intellect, your IQ. Are you the one who chose your IQ? No. Where did that come from? That came from God. Where did your health come from? The language that you were born into, the, the country you were born into, the family you were born into. And, and some of us, it was the adversity of our childhood that helped us learn to overcome. And we became thrivers later on in life because who set us up in those circumstances? Like everything about you, everything you have right now, even if the Bible says, be careful, those of you who say that by my own hand, I've created my wealth because who gave you your hands, he says. Everything about you is only because you've leveraged something you didn't deserve, but you were given 100% of all the awesomeness that is you is on loan <laughs> that reminds I used to travel with a guy for Keebler, and he used to listen to Rush Limbaugh. And he said something about wonderful talent on loan from God or something like that. I don't, this is back in the, the, the 80s. Or, wow, I'm really old. Back in the early 90s is when this was. But, but that, that phrase made me think of Alan Gann, the sales rep I used to travel with. Sorry, if, but if I didn't mention that, I wouldn't be able to keep going. But the point is that everything about you is on loan to you from God. And someday, it will all be taken back. See, if God wants your money, he'll squash you. Like, he'll take it. You know what I'm saying? Like, every, like it's, this is, it's all a gift. Everything about you is a gift from God. It belongs to him. And someday, it will no longer be yours to take care of. Because all of this was invested in you as the bank. And there will come a time where a withdrawal will happen. And you will give an account for everything that you did with it. Just like any other transaction. Another, another principle I get from this passage of Scripture is that at God's discretion, people are given power and made great. All that we have belongs to God. Our life is short, and what we do with the stuff that we've been given matters to God, especially the motives behind what we do or we don't do. That's what David said. God, you see my motives. You know why I do this. He also knows why we don't. And this stuff matters to God. My stuff isn't mine. My stuff is borrowed. Everything that I own belongs to God. It doesn't belong to me. It's been invested in me, and I have to use these resources, yes, to provide for myself and my family, but I also have a fiduciary responsibility to use these resources in whose best interests? Mine or God's? God's, and David understood that. Matthew chapter 25, for the sake of time, we're not going to be reading that, but I read that passage of Scripture two weeks ago. And in the opening of this series, we read that passage of Scripture where Jesus said, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a master who gives to everybody who works for him a certain measure of resources. And he gives them the amount of resources he knows they're capable of managing for him. So to one guy, he gives five bags of silver. To another guy, he gives two bags of silver. And to another guy, he gives one bag of silver. But he gave them what they got, not because he liked them differently. He liked them all the same. He gave them what they got because he knew that that's what they were capable of handling. 
And then Jesus said, the way that God sees reality is that when the master gives you these things, he goes away. And then you're responsible to leverage these things in his best interest. Now, those guys were responsible to live off of those bags of silver, too. Like, this is what they had from the master to be able to live. But also, they recognized that they were responsible for these bags of silver to act in the best interest of the master because ultimately, who owned their bags of silver? The master did. So when the master comes back, and this is the picture of Judgment Day, the first guy comes in and he says, you gave me five and I leveraged those well and I trusted you and I knew your plan would work because I believed you and, and I brought you back five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your reward. You are faithful over little, you'll be, you'll be ruler over much. The second guy comes in and says the same thing. Master, I trusted you, and I, I used what I had because I, I believed you, and, and you gave me two bags of silver, and now I brought back two more. Here's, here's four bags of silver. And the master says the exact same thing to the second guy that he said to the first. So even though what they got was differently, what they received as a reward was exactly the same. So there's no comparison. So it wasn't like this guy's five and this guy. Yes, this guy had five, but, he, but, but to whom much is given, what is required? Much. And to whom little is given, how much is required? Little, but both of them were 100% responsible for how much of their stuff? 100%. And because they both did it well, he gave them both the same reward. Enter into the joy of your rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over little, now you'll be ruler over much. The third guy comes in who had the one bag of silver and he was afraid of the master. So he said, all right, I don't know if I can trust the master, so what's the rules? What do I have to do? Well, the Talmud says that if I want, the basics of what I have to do is, is I can bury it in my yard and I can just give back my master what he gave me, and that would be good enough. So because he didn't trust the master, he had his faith and trust in the rules. What do I have to do? His heart was asking, what do I have to do? He never really did trust the master. So when he got before the master on judgment day, he said, you wicked, lazy, slothful servant. You knew that I would require more from you than what I gave you. But you stuck to the rules. You never did trust me. Take from him what I gave him and cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weak being and, and, and gnashing of teeth. And take what was given to him and give it to the guy who will take care of it better. The whole point between this is there's some principles here also. And that is that everything that I have comes from God. But I'm responsible to use every bit of it well. The next principle I get from that passage of Scripture is that I will be held accountable by God for what I do with every resource he puts in my hand. Those of us who trust the master will leverage those resources for the master's purposes. And those of us who don't trust the master won't. And let's be honest, that's what it comes down to. Trust. Those of us who trust God will leverage our resources for the kingdom of God, and those of us who don't, won't. And the reason why we don't, the reason why we won't, is because we don't trust the master. We're afraid, and that leads me to the second myth, that if I give, then I'll have less for myself later on. Now, I can't think of a better illustration of this than the illustration I think I've told probably three or four times, but if you can come up with a better illustration of that, I'll, stop, I'll start using that one and stop using this one. But when Ryan, the soccer kid, was like four or five years old, his favorite, his favorite cereal was Cocoa Roos. How many of you guys know what Cocoa Roos are? It's the bag version of Cocoa Puffs. All right, we buy bag cereal. Don't judge. All right? Anybody else like bag cereal? And then you get a taste for bag cereal, and then you don't want the box stuff. But like, 
Billy Jane bought box checks last week, and I'm like, oh, we're coming up in the world. We got box cereal, right? That's, that's like, wow, we're like, we're, we're, we're getting ahead. We got box cereal. So anyway, Cocoa, Cocoa Ruse is, was Ryan's favorite. And so I, 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 I gave, I pulled out of the cabinet a bowl that I paid for, and I put that bowl in Ryan's hand. And then I, 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 I poured Cocoa Ruse that I paid for at Stop and Shop, and I poured my cereal into Ryan's bowl. I gave Ryan a spoon that was my spoon that I put in Ryan's hand, and then I poured in that cereal bowl milk. So like, like, like everything I put in his hands came from who? Me. I, I am the source of everything he's holding. So I've got a bowl. He's got a bowl. He's got his favorite cereal, Cocoa Roos. He's got a spoon. He's got milk. He's ready to go. I put the cereal bag down. I look at Ryan and say, hey, buddy, can I have the first bite? Did I need his cereal? Yes or no? Then why did I ask for it? I wanted to see if this kid loves me and if he trusts me. And you know what he said? No. Because he's a jerk. He said no. You know why he said no? Because he was afraid. You know why you don't give? Same reason. We're afraid. He was afraid that if he gave daddy a bite of his cocoa puffs, he wouldn't have enough. What he forgot is that all of his cocoa puffs came from who? I'm the freaking king of cocoa puffs, boy. I can dump this on, like, I got another whole bag you don't even know about. Like, I got, like, I got Cocoa Puffs on Cocoa Puffs on Cocoa Puffs. Like, I can, I can, I'm the Cocoa Puff hook up. That's what I am. All I wanted was for you to recognize where your Cocoa Puffs came from, and you couldn't do that. Why? Fear. He was afraid that I wouldn't have his back if he put me first. That's what he was afraid of. In Genesis, this is, this is one of the first problems that mankind has with God. In Genesis chapter 4, if you've got your Bible, turn there. In Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to read uh, uh, about the first conflict, uh, interpersonal conflict that you see, see in the Bible. But Genesis chapter 4, uh, Cain and Abel are the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And the Bible says in, first, in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, when it was time uh, for the harvest, that Cain presented, what's the next word? When it came time for the harvest, Cain presented what? Some of his harvest. He presented some of his harvest, uh, some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Uh, so that was his offering. He's like, mm, I'll give him something, a little something, something. So he gave some of his offering to the Lord, uh, some of his crops to the Lord. Um, the next verse, verse 4, Abel also brought a gift. Uh, but his wasn't just some. Uh, Abel's offering, the Bible says, was the best of the firstborn. And, and that starts a pattern throughout the Bible uh, from, from Genesis all the way to Revelations of this idea. You see it both in the Hebrew Scriptures and, 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 the, and the Greek Scriptures, the idea of this first fruits, that the first part, right off the top, the best of the best is set aside, set aside for God is what he does. So when Abel gives an offering, his is just some, but when Abel gives his offering, it's the best of the firstborn of his flock. So watch the response in God's heart. Uh, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift. Why? Because it came from a better what? A better place. Because it demonstrated something about his heart. God didn't need Cain's crops or Abel's sheep. What God wanted was their heart. 
But what they did with their resources proved something about their heart. So Abel gave, now get this, Abel gave an offering. But because it didn't come from a good heart, it was not acceptable. That's why the Bible says, don't give under compulsion or out of manipulation. If you don't want to give, don't. God doesn't want your duty. He doesn't want that. Any more than my wife wants me to do my duty. Nobody wants that. Like, I don't want her to be nice because she has to be nice because she's stuck with me. I don't want... Sometimes I'd, be, I'd settle for that. <laughs> but that, that isn't love. I don't want that. Like, it's not that she... like. Okay, you'll only love me, Billy Jane, if I help out in the, like, if I do the dishes. I said, no, it's not about the dishes. But when you do the dishes, it demonstrates that you were thinking about me and what I need. What Billy Jane wants is not a maid. She wants a husband that puts her needs first. And my actions demonstrate who's first in my heart. Why would God settle for any cheaper version of love than what my wife should settle for? Does this make sense? So God looks at Abel's offering and goes, I don't even care how much crap you, like, it's just crap. I don't want that. But this guy, before he did anything else with his crops, the first thing he did was offered the first bite of cocoa ruse to me. I love that. That's what God wants. He wants the first bite of cocoa ruse. Why? Because he wants our what? Our heart. That's it. That's what it's about. Giving some isn't the point. Giving to God first is. God goes on to say to, to Cain and to Abel, he says, why, why are you so upset? Why, he says to Cain, why, why are you so upset? If you did what was right, it'd be acceptable. If you just changed your attitude about your crap, you wouldn't be in this problem. But he said, be, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. And it's going to devour you. And if you don't master this, I'll tell you what, I want you to see that verse. Verse 7. You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you. But if you don't master this, this is going to master you for the rest of your life. You've got to get on top of this or this will destroy you. What was your problem? You don't trust me. How do I know? Look at what you do with your resources. And if you don't get on top of this, you'll stay under it for the rest of your life. It was, the first, it, was it. It's in the first book of the Bible. And we're still struggling with the exact same thing now. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 through 10 those of you guys who are in life groups will get to go over that passage of Scripture. We're not going to read that one today either. But he compares our giving to a farmer. He says a farmer has a bag of seed. And what the farmer does is he plants that seed and he grows a harvest. From that harvest, he has to decide how much of this harvest do I need to consume versus how much of this harvest I need to replant. And if he consumed all of the best of the harvest for himself and planted what was left over, would he have a better harvest or a worse harvest at the end of the summer? It'd be worse. So what the farmer knows to do is to take his best seed and do what with it? His best produce and do what with it? 
to give it back into the ground, to plant it again, not to consume that. The first, right off the top, the best seed gets planted back into the ground and he lives off of the rest. And he says, that is the way you are to handle your resources, Genesis, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9 through 6, uh, uh, excuse me, 6 through 10. He says, those of you guys who, who if, if you consume everything you make and you don't give the best seed back to the one from whom all of that crop comes from in the first place, then I want you to know that's going to have a negative impact on the crop that you, 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 you reap. Those who sow sparingly reap sparingly. Those who sow generously reap generously. Now, I was told to tell you this, and I'm very uncomfortable with this, but I want you to know that I'm eating my own cooking here. My friend said, you need to tell them, you're sm you, you smoke what you sell. And I'm like, I cannot use that illustration of my church at all. <laughs> Too many people struggling with that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But my wife and I, this is, this is awkward, but we're the third biggest givers in this church. I'm telling you, I believe this. And I've believed it my entire life. But I am not the third biggest giver in this church because I'm the third highest wage earner in this church. So I'm telling you, this is personal to me. I believe this to the core of who I am. Those who sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Those who sow generously, reap generously. And I know when I stand before God on Judgment Day, I want to pass that test. Not to get in, but I want him to hear, well done. I'm getting in because of Jesus. But how I lived my life, man, that, sets, that hooks me up for eternity. And I trust God. And I'm telling you, after 47 years of living this way, that God's way works. God's way works. I want to leave you with four thoughts. Number one is this. This ain't no get-rich-quick scheme. You don't give to get. But what God says is, I promise you, if you give, you'll never lack. That's what God says. Some of you guys have heard sermons that have taught you that if you want to be wealthy, give to their ministry. That's a load of crap. Right? If your bull radar was going off, it should have. That's not in the scriptures. We don't give to get rich. That's not the point. We give to be generous because God is generous. We give because God put it in our heart. That's why we give. We give to live selflessly. We give to remind ourselves where everything comes from. We give as an act of worship because we're demonstrating that God is the first priority. That's why we gave him the first bite of cocoa ruse. It's an act of worship. That's why we give. You can't be a horrible steward and expect to give a lot of money at the end and God get you out of debt. You can't mismanage your five bags of silver all the way up until you find out that the master is almost there and then you hurry out with what little coins you got left and throw them somewhere and hope that you get your five bags back plus five more. It doesn't work that way. Some of you guys are in absolute horrible financial circumstances. Some of it you could have controlled and some of it probably you couldn't have. I mean, it just is what it is at this point. But here's my advice to you. If you were my son and you came to me in your financial circumstances, what would I tell you? Here's what I would tell you. I'd say that you're not ready for generosity. I would tell you that. That you're not ready to do something crazy for the Hope Project yet. That's not where you're at. The first thing you need to do is you need to, you need to figure out how much money you make because the first, the first fruit 
The first bite of Kokoroos goes to God. And some of you guys don't even know how big that bite should be because you ain't on top of your money. You've got absolutely no clue to the penny, to the dollar, how much money you make every month. So truthfully, you need to be disciplined. So number one, you're not ready for generosity yet. Number two, you need to be more financially disciplined. You need to figure out how much money you actually make, and you need to make sure that God gets the first tenth because it already belongs to him. You need to make sure that you're able, not Cain. That's what you need to do. The first and the best goes to God. What that will do is that will force you to live on 90%. You know what that will do? Get you some financial discipline that you've never had in your entire life. Now, I have a head start on most people because when I was raised as a child, my mom and dad made me tithe. The first dollar of my entire life went to God through the local church my entire life. But you know how that set me up? Is because I have been forced to live on 90% of my income my entire life. Does that make me better at handling my money or worse at handling my money? Better. It makes me better at handling. You know what that means? I have great credit and no debt. You know why I have great credit and no debt? Because I've lived on 90% of my income my entire life. But some of you guys who are in crazy debt, for you to give God that first bite of cocoa ruse means something else isn't going to get paid. So what that's going to do is that's going to help you also because now you're going to have to actually prioritize your bills. You've never done that either. You're going to have to take all of your bills out. And some of us, we get that bill in the mail and we bury it until it says final notice or until we start calling and then we give the bare minimum to get the phone calls to stop. We are out of control. And what I'm telling you is when you do it God's way, it brings discipline and sanity to your finances. It forces you to live on less than what you make. It forces you to prioritize your debt. When you start applying the principles that Pastor Ken talked about last week, you start getting out of debt. And when you get out of debt, then you can be in a place of generosity, which comes beyond that first bite of cocoa ruse. Man, it'd be awesome to give two, three, four. Like, God, have us, why? Because I trust that you give, you're the source of cocoa ruse. That's what you are. Two, second thought is this. Stop asking how much you have to give. If that's your question, you are completely missing the point. I know in the scriptures where God started, what he started with was a requirement. What they ended up with was generosity, which went way beyond the requirement. What you see in the Old Testament was 10% belongs to God. What you see in the New Testament, it all belongs to God. The first time Barnabas, the guy who mentored and discipled the Apostle Paul, shows up in the Bible, it's because he sold property on the island of Crete to give it to God through his local church. He had already given all of his cash. Now he's selling crap to give more. That's the first time he shows up in the Bible. He's the son of encouragement. He became the mentor for the Apostle Paul. And the first time he shows up, the first thing that's told us about him was his generosity. He didn't ask, how much do I have to? His question was, what do I need to keep? Because it all belongs to God. What do I need to live on? But here's the better question. Do you trust God, yes or no? But do you? Second question. Does God own everything that you're responsible for, yes or no? And have you asked yourself how he would handle your resources if he were in your shoe? Third thought is this. Someday I'll stand before God and give an account for what I have. On that day, will I wish that I had given more or given less? When I stand before God on judgment day, on that day, will I want to have given more or given less? Answer the question. 
That, that's right, that might not answer the question. I mean, like that. I was like, seriously, what's the answer to the question? So if I could come back to myself today and tell me something about how to live the rest of my life on Judgment Day, would I come back to myself today and tell myself to give more or give less? Then follow your own advice. And the last thing is this. This isn't a matter of salvation. This is a matter of trust. I'm made right with God, and it has nothing to do with money. I'm made right with God by faith in Jesus. Some of us were raised in churches that taught us that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead to create a doorway between us and God. And if I do all the right things, then I can find the right keys to open up all of the deadlocks. If I get baptized as a baby, if I get confirmed, if I do First Communion, but dang it, I better get all of them because if I unlock all the locks but leave one locked, then I'm screwed. I spend eternity in hell. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus died because the punishment for our sin was death. Jesus died, and his death created the doorway between me and God. But he didn't just die. He didn't come just to give me his death. He rose from the dead to give me new life. So his death created the door. His resurrection opens the door. It's already open. Anybody who wants to find God has to walk through that door. That's it. And that simple act of faith of God, I accept that your death, burial, resurrection is the only thing that rescues me. I trust you. You walk through that door empty-handed, it'll change the way you live the rest of your life. I don't live on this side of the door on fear. I live on that side of the door with gratitude. And because I'm grateful for everything that God has done for me, I want to find out more things in my life that need to be tweaked. Why? So that God will love me? No, because he already does. Because I'm grateful. I know how much he's done for me. When I die, I don't want any gas left in the tank. I want my engine to die as I cross the finish line, two miles an hour, slowing down. I want my guardian angel to say, that dude was a moron, but dang it, he kept the gas pedal down. I want my, guy, my angel to be in the back. I want that 80s, I want my angel to go. I want that 80s slow clap. But you don't, get your, you don't get the 80s slow clap the day you enter eternity unless you live your life fully leveraged for the glory of God. Now, you'll get there because of your faith in Jesus. But dang it, I want to hear God say, you rocked it, kid. Good job. And every one of us can hear that, but not if we keep living the same way. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you love us no matter what. And I'm thankful that none of this stuff changes whether or not you love me. But God, what I do with this stuff does demonstrate whether or not I love you back. And God, trusting you is a scary thing and it's difficult. It, it's terrifying. And that's why it's so important to you. is because it demonstrates that we love you, that we trust you like a kid jumping off a high place into his daddy's arms. You ask us to jump, but we'll only jump if we really do trust that you'll catch us. So God, help us grow in these areas. For those of us who are completely screwed up in our finances, help us to become disciplined. Help us to figure out how much we make. Help us to, to like, throughout all of history, make sure that you get the first bite of cocoa roost, trusting that we can live off the rest of the bowl of cereal. God, you are the source of unending resources. God, help us to be faithful with the resources you've already given us. If we're faithful with little, we'll be faithful with much. But if we're unfaithful with little, we'll be unfaithful with much. But God, some of us are jacked up in this area. Help us to find the help that we need. Help us to start paying off our debt. Help us to start living on less than what we make. 
Help us to be wise stewards of the resources that you invested in our account. Help us to live fully leveraged for your glory and for the good of others around us. And we make this prayer and we ask it in the name of Jesus. And we all say it together, amen.